0: Love, Talk Radio.
1: Welcome, you're listening to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio with your host, Darren Batman McDuck, and now, prepare to get fat. Hey, 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 welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. I'm your host, Darren Fatman McDuffie, and this podcast is being brought to you by I'mTheFatMan.com. Really hyped about today's show just simply because we're going to be talking about gluten and grains, and um, I make no bones about my own miraculous uh, recovery from uh, just taking grains out of my diet. I'll tell the story real quick here. Of having knee pain playing basketball for a number of years and having knee pain and just thought that as I got older it was just to be something that I had to deal with and I ended up uh, taking gluten out of my diet about seven eight years ago time flies but seven eight years ago took the gluten out of my diet and voila the arthritis just suddenly disappeared so I'm a big advocate of getting rid of gluten and grains out of the diet Tonight we're going to be talking about that. But before I bring our guest on, just want to remind you of last week's show, The Emotion Code with Dr. Bradley Nelson. Really good show. Um, we spent about an hour just talking about trapped emotions, the heart wall, and how you can open up yourself. And Dr. Bradley actually ex- expressed that just about every case that he's seen with pain it normally involves trapped emotions, so go back and listen to that show and go out and get his book because it's actually um, a really good book and really simple process to use to be to get rid of uh, trapped emotions. So without further ado, let me go ahead and read Dr. Peter Osborne, who is, I guess, his bio, and then bring him on. Dr. Peter Osborne is the clinical director of Origins Healthcare Center in Sugarland, Texas, which is just southwest of Houston. He's a doctor of chiropractic medicine and a board-certified clinical nutritionist. He is an expert in orthomolecular and functional medicine. He has been practicing since 2001. His clinical focus is the holistic natural treatment of chronic degenerative diseases with a primary focus on gluten sensitivity and food allergies. He has helped thousands of patients recover from mysterious medical illnesses. He founded Gluten-Free Society in 2010, to help educate patients and physicians on the far-reaching effects of gluten sensitivity. He's the author of Glutenology, a series of books designed to help educate the world about gluten. Dr. Peter Osborne, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Ro- uh, Tone Radio. How are you tonight?
2: I'm doing well. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing good, Dr. Osborne. So glad you can come on. I'm super hyped uh, for this show just simply because I am one of those people who suffered from gluten sensitivity and had the wherewithal to kind of pull it out of my diet. Now, I looked at your background. You're a doctor of chiropractic medicine. So I always thought chiropractors were those people who you go in and get your adjustments from. What kind of got you into this whole research about gluten?
2: I actually started part of my training in the VA hospital in rheumatology uh, Mm -hmm. going through graduate school. And uh, what got me into it is is seeing all the patients with chronic pain, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, scleroderma, dermatomyositis, uh, psoriatic arthritis, spondyloarthritis, reactive arthritis, all these different forms of autoimmune-induced pain. And and, uh, kind of the mantra within the hospital system there was drug the pain away and uh you know i never really got got that because the patients didn't get better so here we were we were you know we were recommending a lot of different high powered medications but uh the patients weren't really getting better so to me it was just a point of of frustration in that how could i spend the next you know 20 or 30 years or longer uh, in a field in a career where where patients aren't getting better if if we continue to do the same kinds of treatments and protocols that um that are currently being recommended. So it was very frustrating to be in that environment. And yeah. uh, what what I found was was ultimately what I found is that, you know, these were all autoimmune conditions, and so we could draw the correlation. At least we knew there was an autoimmune disease called celiac disease, which most people are aware is, is, a, is an autoimmune disease of the small intestine, and it's caused by gluten. And, and, you know, at the time it was the only autoimmune disease that we actually had a known cause for. And uh, so that was where my research began. Was that, you know why don't we take the premise of knowing that autoimmune disease can be caused by gluten, and tying mm-hmm. that into pain, joint pain, and joint autoimmune diseases, and seeing whether or not these patients would respond to a gluten-free diet as well. Of course, the hospital didn't want me to do those types of studies, and so I ended up leaving the hospital, and uh, began private practice. Mm-hmm. And some of my some of my earliest and and uh, some of my earliest patients were autoimmune arthritis. And uh so one in particular uh was a was a patient and, and what happened was she was she was um terminal. She actually was given six months to live by her by her primary doctors, her rheumatologist and primary doctors. So they basically they told her mom to go home and prepare for her death. And uh she had a disease called rheumatoid arthritis that, that um that you know actually in in this case it was a, it was a subset of rheumatoid arthritis called juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and um in at any rate you know after further testing and diagnostics we we found gluten sensitivity was was a major issue with this patient and um obviously she's not terminal today she's actually in high school she plays volleyball she's doing extremely well so um she's she's completely off of all medications and in complete remission and that happened as a result of a diet change Mm-hmm. And so that was one of my earliest patients in private practice, and then as I as I moved forward, I, I continued to apply, the, you know, apply that concept and to actually test people. I, I I'm a big fan of testing and not guessing. You mm-hmm. know, people can take gluten out of their diet and they can feel better, but the reality is, is that if they take it out of their diet and feel better, is it because they're gluten sensitive or is it because? There's some other substance within grain that causes irritation. Is it because of the pesticides? Is it because of the genetic manipulation or the hybrid of grain? So I like to test for all these different things so that we can determine exactly what a person needs to do and understand why they need to do it uh, before moving forward. And that just has been, for me, that began 15 years ago in the VA hospital, and it's just evolved in my own private practice over the last many years.
1: Yeah, let's go back to these terms because I don't I like to treat my audience kind of like with kid gloves, so to speak. Um, sure. let's talk about what what is gluten because I know when I first heard about it 7-8 years ago, I'm like, "What the heck is gluten? I never heard about gluten." And then talk a little bit about um gluten sensitivity, celiac and also gluten to- gluten intolerance is that the same thing gluten sensitivity and gluten intolerance but i know that's a loaded question but let's just start with the with the what is gluten to begin with
2: sure so yeah it's a loaded question for sure and it's a big mouth right it's a there's a lot there
1: mm-hmm. gluten
2: is defined technically gluten is defined as a family of proteins okay found within the seeds of grass and so we have different forms of grass. You've got wheat grass and barley and rye and oats, which is what most people have heard of. You know, the, the traditional breads, pastas, and cereals are made of those uh, particular grass seeds. So, wheat, you know, the wheat seed. Um, and then you've got other grains, like corn is a grain and rice is a grain and sorghum and millet are grains. The classical scent um, is that The only grains that contain gluten are wheat, barley, and rye, and there's some argument about oats. That's the classical definition. And this definition was refined and actually was created in 1952. Um, So we're working on 65-year-old science, basically. The actual definition, if you ask a plant botanist, if you ask a doctor specializing in, in plant biology, the actual definition of gluten is that it is the family of proteins and it's not restricted to wheat, barley, rye or oats, but it also is inclusive of corn, sorghum, millet and rice. So it's the family of proteins found within the seeds of grass. And and so that's, that's in, in a broad sense, that's the definition. Now, if we talk about celiac disease, we'll tie this into celiac disease. Celiac disease is a disease that was identified and discovered, the cause of it was discovered in 1952 and what happened was um, there were a bunch of children who had celiac disease in a in a hospital in Germany, and at the time they didn't know what caused celiac disease. But what would happen is the patients would basically vomit and diarrhea until they dehydrated and died. And uh, so it was not a very good disease to have, right? And and so during World War II. Grain itself in Germany was rationed. You couldn't get grain as a food source in the hospital. So what happened was all these patients with celiac disease healed. Um, and, And so the doctor who observed that, his name was William Dickey, he observed that and he wrote a paper and published it in 1952 uh, and his observation was that look, you know, this, the grains that are eaten in Germany are wheat, barley, rye, and oats. And when those are not available to these patients with celiac disease, these patients with celiac disease heal. Therefore, we think that uh, celiac disease is caused by uh, by consumption of these grains. And what happened was another group of doctors in the same year it, tried to validate the study. And what they found is when you removed all grain from the diets of celiac patients, including corn and rice, that we had 100% remission in the disease. But unfortunately what happened, there was another research study that was published in the same year out of the University of Birmingham, Alabama, that found that that um, there's a particular kind of gluten found in wheat, barley, and rye called gliadin. And uh, what they did is they discovered and isolated this protein, and they declared that it was the cause for celiac disease. And for whatever reason, doctors grabbed onto that study and ran with it. And so we got this limited definition of gluten being only uh, found in wheat, barley, and rye. And and that, unfortunately, has led to many people maintaining their illness because what happens is a lot of people go gluten-free who have celiac disease, but they don't go truly gluten-free. They only cut out wheat, barley, and rye, but they continue to eat things like oats and corn and rice. And so what happens is they're getting different kinds of glutens. There's, if we think of what gluten is, gluten is, is a—I said it's a family of proteins. Think of it as as you might think of a car. What's a car? Well, a car is a vehicle made out of steel with four tires and a motor that takes you from A to B, right? right. Well, all cars are similar in structure, shape, and function. And, and the same thing can be said for gluten we've got lots of different kinds of glutens. There's actually several hundred different kinds of gluten found in just wheat alone. And uh, so when we add them all together, there are several thousand forms of gluten found within wheat, barley, rye, oats, corn, rice, sorghum, and millet. And they're all gluten, but again, the USDA defines gluten only as the types of gluten found in wheat, barley, and rye. So I, I know that's a lot of science and I, and I, To try to keep it simple, that's the general gist, is that gluten is the family of protein found within grain. Grain is the seed of grass. And celiac disease is the disease caused by the consumption of grain. It's a disease that impacts and affects the small intestine and leads to malnutrition. And the malnutrition causes all kinds of damage to a person.
1: Right. Now, getting back to, I I mean, I understand what gluten sensitivity is, but um, I was looking at some of your your youtube stuff and you had a video on there uh, which talked about i believe it was celiac gluten sensitivity and gluten intolerance are those terms i know celiac is not (laughs) interchangeable but the terms gluten sensitivity and gluten intolerance is there a difference between that or those terms pretty much interchangeable
2: no so if they're not interchangeable either and that again (laughs) is where a lot of the confusion comes because some people try to use the terms interchangeably and then then we get confusion, right? It would be like calling a calling uh calling a car a truck, right? And every you know, and then you're looking for a truck but you're seeing a car, right? It just it gets confusing. Gluten intolerance is think of any intolerance. You've probably heard of, of lactose intolerance, right? Most people have right. heard of that. It's a it's a form of, of of intolerance where a person who drinks or eats dairy products, they don't have the ability, they don't have the digestive enzymes to be able to break down the dairy. And so what happens is the dairy, the, the lactose, the sugar in the dairy, it sits in the gut and it ferments. It Basically, it rots. It gets eaten by the bacteria that live in our intestine, and the byproduct of that is gas, right? And so people who have an intolerance have digestive disturbance. They get gassy, they get bloated, they get painful distension in their abdomen. And that's, generally, that's what an intolerance is, whether you're talking about a lactose intolerance or a gluten intolerance. There's some people that when they eat gluten, they cannot digest it. They don't have the enzymes that are capable of being able to break it down. And so if they eat it, they get gassy, they get bloated, they get symptoms like irritable bowel. And and so that in and of itself is an intolerance, whereas a gluten sensitivity is an actual immune response. And mm-hmm. and so, instead of, instead of, so an intolerance is when you can't digest it or break it down, so your bacteria create gas as a byproduct for trying to help you break it down sensitivity is when your immune system sees the gluten and recognizes it as an enemy and therefore goes after it and starts attacking it. And the side effect of the immune system attacking something is 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 infl- inflammation. So we create a lot of inflammation. If that inflammation gets into the bloodstream, it, it can create damage to our organs and damage to our tissues. And that's why you were experiencing, your, your story, you were experiencing joint pain. And so what was happening is that gluten-based inflammation was getting into your joints and, and it was uh-huh. basically creating inflammation in your joints, that's a sensitivity. And sensitivity in and of itself is not a disease. We, we try to make things sound like they're diseases. So celiac disease is a disease. But, uh-huh. but gluten sensitivity is when somebody who's eating gluten that shouldn't has inflammation as a result of eating that gluten. And subsequently the inflammation... Wherever it goes, whether it's in your joints or in your intestines or whether it's in your organs, that's what creates the disease. So the people who are gluten sensitive, who react uh, in a manner where their small intestines are being damaged, we end up calling that disease state celiac disease. So, so kind of to so summarize that, everybody with celiac disease is gluten sensitive, but not everybody with gluten sensitivity will develop celiac disease. Some people will develop other forms of disease in other locations of the body as a result of
1: the same kind of inflammation that causes
2: celiac disease.
1: Yeah. And I I know you're – I read your bio. I know that you're big on testing for, you know, allergy testing. And I used to work in food sensitivity testing. I'm I'm no longer in that field now. But one of the things that kind of threw me off when I first started uh, working in the field was – We could all get tested for free. I was in there with some counterparts, and I I knew from the testing, I had never been formally tested until I started working at this place, and that was probably about a a year or so ago. And uh, I was then, I knew I already had gluten sensitivity, and I was tested, and that was confirmed. But I knew there was one young lady that worked with me, but she wasn't considered to be gluten sensitive, but she came up sensitive to a protein in wheat, have you seen that and if if you've if you've seen that, what would you recommend? Do you recommend that if someone takes a test and they come up but they're not sensitive they come up with some type of thing that they are sensitive to in wheat itself to just put wheat out of their diet altogether?
2: So so it depends on the kind of test. So um mm-hmm. there's a lot of different ways so so I'm gonna summarize the immune tests for everybody listening so they kinda have an idea because Right. When we do an immune test, we, we can do – there's two broad categories of immune tests, and these are just broad categories. One is called an acute immune reaction, meaning that when we eat a food, within 30 minutes to three hours, we're having some kind of obvious symptom. And th- the example here um, would be somebody who has um, a peanut allergy, right? And they eat the peanut, and their throat swells, and their lips swell, and they break out in hives. You know, that's what we would call an acute reaction. Now, some people don't end up with severe acute reactions. They have, they have reactions that are still noticeable, but they don't end up in the hospital. And so those reactions will be things like watery, teary, itchy eyes, coughing, sneezing, and increased heart rate. Okay, so these are all other kind of acute allergy symptoms that a person might experience. So those are all kind of fit under a, an umbrella of acute. And there's a set of tests that measure that kind of a reaction. Those are called IgE, immunoglobulin E tests. Right. And if you've ever been to an allergist, they do the skin prick testing. That's a form of IgE testing. You can also do IgE testing by drawing blood and measuring IgE in the blood. But there's this whole other realm of testing called delayed hypersensitivity testing. And so what this measures, there are six different ways you can have an immune reaction under this umbrella, under the delayed umbrella. And so what a lot of labs do, and I, like I said, I don't know which lab you you were you were affiliated with, but a lot of labs only test one or two of those six ways, and this is where a lot of the confusion, this is where you can get a false negative test. So somebody mm-hmm. who could be gluten sensitive does this test, but their test results come back negative, right? And and one of the reasons why is because the lab isn't measuring for all six reactions. They're measuring one or two. But the other reason why is, I told you before, for gluten, there's thousands of different glutens. So most labs are actually only measuring one type of gluten. So we've got six different ways that we can react, and we've got thousands of different kinds of glutens we could react to. So if we just did the math and we just said, let's just keep it at an even 2,000 different kinds of glutens, and there's six different ways you can react, and there's 12,000 different potential immune responses that we could, we could measure. And there's no lab in the world commercially that can measure all of that. And that's one of the biggest reasons why tests can come back negative, even though a person might still take gluten out of their diet and feel better. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I know for me, um, I kind of self-diagnosed myself until I started working. Where I was working, I'm not going to mention it on the air, but um, I just was always going to sleep every, every time I ate gluten and then I had the joint pain and then someone just told me to, to get off gluten and I just tried it for 30 days and I knew that, that that was it, that I would never go back to eating, you know, any kind of grains and I've stayed pretty much, uh you know, gluten-free. But um, with that being said, I wanted to ask you about gluten-free products and what would be, is there a grain out there that's safe for people who are would be considered gluten free? Or is your advice to just stay off all grains? No. So the, the the
2: earlier I was defining gluten as the family of proteins found within grains and they're all so similar that what again if we go back and define gluten sensitivity what and, and the way doctors try to diagnose it, most doctors try to diagnose it with limited tests. The gold standard in in actually identifying gluten sensitivity, because remember, gluten sensitivity itself isn't a disease. It's genetic. You either Mm -hmm. have genes that react to gluten or you don't. And if you do and you consume gluten, then the side effect of that gluten consumption is going to be inflammation. So to, Mm -hmm. to truly know, if a person really wants to know, do I need to cut this stuff out for the rest of my life? then genetic testing is the gold standard. Genetic testing to measure whether or not a person has gluten-sensitive genes. If a person has gluten-sensitive genes, they should not eat grain. And so back to those gluten-free products, remember that the traditional definition of gluten as defined on a food label is wheat, barley, and rye only. So the product could have oats in it. The product could have corn, rice, or sorghum or millet in it and be labeled as gluten-free even though it contains gluten. And what we see in patients is we see a a phenomenon called gluten-free whiplash, which is they go and they they get off of wheat, barley, and rye, but then they start eating these gluten-free breads and pastas and cereals. And a few months into this, they start feeling bad again. They start reacting again. And that's because they're getting gluten still. They're just getting less gluten because some of these other glutens, uh, by concentration, for example, wheat is the highest. It has 70% of the protein in wheat is actually gluten. Whereas if we look at, for example, if we look at corn, about 55% of the protein in corn is gluten. So, you know, the, the 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 quantity is much lower, but if they're still eating it, then they're still accumulating inflammation. They're still accumulating damage. And so what ends up happening is they end up getting sick and or staying sick and not really recovering or getting better.
1: Yeah, you just mentioned corn and and uh, rice, and I just recently tried to put that back in my diet, and that was a no go. What, what is your your feeling on um, uh, just the corn and rice? Because I know someone's going to ask that if they're they're listening to the podcast.
2: So right, so I mean, a lot of advocates for corn will say, "Oh, corn's gluten free; you can eat it." Um, here's the here's the, the the reality of it is that. Corn gluten, also known as Zane, uh, is, is a form of gluten protein found in all corn, and it is extremely toxic to a person with gluten sensitivity. We've studied this now a number of times, and the most recent study that was published back, and I think I want to say it was 2013, it was done by a group of, uh, of doctors in South America, and what they found was that people with gluten-sensitive genes reacted to corn gluten worse than they reacted to wheat gluten. So so my advice is, you know, don't buy the label hype. If you're gluten sensitive, avoid the corn. As far as rice is concerned, of, of all the grain, rice is the lowest by concentration. Rice has less gluten than all the other grains. However, what I see with, it's interesting that you mentioned is a big mistake because one of the things I see in people who have joint pain when they, when they get gluten exposure,
1: mm-hmm. those
2: people always tend to react to rice worse.
1: You um, are right. You're
2: right. Rice- <laughs> The rice crackers, the rice cookies, the rice pizza crust, they tend to overreact to the rice. Now, one of the other components to rice that's really not good for us, so if we're even taking gluten out of the equation, Uh rice is super high in the toxic metals, cadmium and arsenic. Uh And, And so what happens is people who are eating a lot of rice end up getting toxic metal burden and so now they're being inflamed from that as well as the gluten in rice and so it just creates a big
1: mess. Yeah, and um, what about brown rice? Is brown rice okay? And, I, I, and I've even ventured into wild rice. I don't have a problem with the wild rice, but I've been kind of wondering about brown rice just simply because with white rice, if I eat white rice, it just feels like I'm moving in slow motion. It just immediately makes me tired and fatigued. But um, I hadn't noticed that as much with the brown rice, but I just said, you know what, maybe I should just take it back out of my diet altogether
2: i would I would take it out I mean brown rice has got just as much gluten in it it's got just as much mercury and just as much or not mercury cadmium and just as much arsenic in it um so so from perspective it's really not much better for you. I'd say the thing that's better about the white rice uh or the or the brown rice versus the white rice is the glycemic load in other words, it will cause a less of a uh, less of a rapid rise in blood sugar, creating blood sugar fluctuation. So, you know, some people who are diabetics do really, really poorly when they spike their blood sugar with food, and and so so brown rice is better for that purpose. But it's still going to have gluten in it. Now, as far as wild rice is concerned, wild rice is technically wild rice isn't a grain at all. It's a pseudo. It's a pseudonym. It's 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 a, not a pseudonym. It's a misnomer, meaning that uh, you know we call ri- wild rice a rice, a rice, but it's actually it's actually a grass. It's a marsh grass. It's not a seed at all. And so
1: from a gluten perspective, it's okay. Yeah. Um, one of the other things I know, I'm going to use myself a lot as an example here. One of the other things that I notice with taking the gluten out of my diet, taking the grains out of my diet, was um, I grew up? I, I grew up as a skinny kid. I played basketball. I was always trying to gain weight. And then, as I got older, probably like twenty five, my weight just started to just pile on me. And then I began to be like thirty five pounds or oh, 40 pounds overweight, which was a stark contrast from where I started. But I noticed when I got the gluten and the grains out of my diet, suddenly my weight just normalized by itself. Like I didn't have to worry about hey, don't eat this, don't eat that, and I was really killing myself in exercise before that time. But when I pulled the gluten out of my diet, I know that now my weight just tends to normalize. I stay around 225. Sometimes I'll dip to 215 or so, just depending on what I'm doing. But um, is that a common occurrence with a lot of people that they, because they're on gluten and they may be sensitive to it, that they are having uh, weight issues? very common. It's
2: actually, it's so common, in fact, that I have a name, a special name for it. It's called grain obesity. <laughs> yeah, so mm-hmm. we see, we see people who, who are consuming grains and, and there's actually a cycle, a, a, a biochemical cycle that occurs is that we get grain induced inflammation and then that inflammation triggers a hormonal change within the person. And one of the hormones that comes out to play when we're chronically inflamed by our food is cortisol. And this is a hormone that's produced by our adrenal glands, the glands that sit just on top of our kidneys. And, uh, and so this cortisol comes out because its job is to fight inflammation. So it's real common in medicine if somebody has like an injury that they might go to the doctor and the doctor gives them a corticosteroid injection well, that's cortisol. The doctor's just injecting them with a, with a, a synthetic derivative of, of, of what we would naturally make on our own. And uh, but, so, as, we're making, as we make cortisol, one of the side effects of producing too much over long periods of time is water retention and weight gain. Have you ever seen anybody go on a course of steroids for a long time? A lot of times their face gets really, really puffy they retain a lot of water, and they start to store a lot of fat around their, their abdomen and in their subcutaneous tissues, so below the skin. And it's a very, very common process that occurs in people who are gluten sensitive because every time they're eating gluten, they're causing an inflammation, and the inflammation tells their body to make cortisol, and then the cortisol tries to fight the inflammation from their food, but then in, in, as a consequence or a side effect of that, it actually creates an obesity uh, in the long
1: run. So just taking that out, with for just someone who's out there who is actually listening and really struggling with their weight and they have not been diagnosed with any type of gluten sensitivity or anything, would just pulling grains out of the diet be kind of like the most optimal thing they would be able to do?
2: Well, it certainly wouldn't hurt them. Um hmm you know if they're struggling and they want to and they you know maybe they don't want to do a test maybe they just want to do a challenge right like a 30 like what you did a 30 day challenge yeah. mm-hmm. there's no danger whatsoever in doing that so uh you know a lot of a lot of nutritionists and and I've, I saw this on the news not too long ago there were some nutritionists and doctors talking about how it's dangerous to not eat grain how it causes nutritional loss and nutritional deficiency and it's not dangerous at all that's actually myth and misinformation um, as a matter of fact, if we go back in history in nineteen forty three the United States government banned the sale of grain in the, in our country that was banned unless you actually fortified the grain with vitamins and minerals and that 's why you see on a loaf of bread or a box of cereal you 'll see it 's fortified with you know with vitamin b one and it 's fortified with iron and it 's fortified with vitamin A and zinc. It has to by law you can 't actually sell those cereal products without fortifying them because if you if what happened early in the 19th century what happened is people were developing diseases as a result of eating grain and so so the government stepped in and said if you're going to sell it you've got to fortify it and uh but we forgot that that history doesn't get taught in school and most people alive today don't remember that that um uh, history nutritionally so it's it's one of those kind of kind of I guess you could say, kind of stories that that has escaped most doctors, one, because they don't study nutrition, and it's escaped most people because it's just not being taught in school.
1: Yeah, it's crazy how they tell us that they they ban something and then they put it back in our diet and tell us, hey, it's okay to eat it. (laughs) I don't get that. Right, right. um, Let's talk a little bit about women because a lot of women right now are seeming to get – diagnosed with Hashimoto's which is an autoimmune disease. Now you talked a little bit earlier about autoimmune disease. What role does grain play in the I guess being the catalyst for autoimmune diseases? Well, it's a huge
2: catalyst. As a matter of, if we look at and we say okay, there's about 140 different forms of autoimmune disease and Hashimoto's definitely thyroid disease being one of those forms. Celiac disease also another one of those forms as we mentioned earlier. But um, there are, to date, we know of four basic things that will trigger or help to promote autoimmune disease. And the one that's been probably more well-studied than any other is gluten. Um, And we know that there's a direct correlation between gluten and Hashimoto's, meaning that people with Hashimoto's, um, the science is strong enough at this point to to probably say people with Hashimoto's are gluten-sensitive and should avoid eating gluten. Um, unfortunately, most endocrinologists that are that are diagnosing Hashimoto's don't share that opinion with me, um, and, and don't even talk. About, a lot of them don't even talk about gluten with their patients. Um, but but gluten is one of the causes of autoimmune disease. Now, there's three other there's three other things that we know can trigger an autoimmune process. Another one is vitamin and mineral deficiencies, and mm, uh, yeah, probably the an most attribute. well studied is. Yep, vitamin D deficiency, well, well studied. Now, what's ironic about that is that gluten causes vitamin and mineral deficiencies. So we get gluten causing nutritional uh, deficiency that can also promote autoimmune disease. Now, a third one is infection. And so, in fact, when most people think of infection, they think of a cold or a flu, you know, where they're breaking, the, you know, they got a fever of 100, 300, Well, we're not talking about acute infections. We're talking about chronic infection, like Lyme disease or Epstein-Barr or mononucleosis, these kind of, they're, they're kind of low-lying infections that just sit inside of us and slowly erode at our immune system and slowly eat away at our immune system. And so there's specialized types of tests that can help identify those types of chronic infections. And then the fourth is environmental chemicals. And uh, some of the more common ones that we've linked to autoimmunity, one is Pesticides. And uh, some people believe that that one of the biggest reasons why people that go gluten free to feel better is because they're eliminating a big chunk of pesticide from their diet. There's a particular pesticide in in wheat uh, called Roundup, uh, and as well as in corn, and uh, Roundup or glyphosate. And this pesticide, when you go grain free or gluten free, you're avoiding the vast majority of the of exposure to this pesticide. And so some people believe that 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 pesticide. Is a big, big factor in the increased incidence of, of diagnosis of gluten sensitivity because people are self-diagnosing. They say, "Hey, I feel better when I don't eat it, so I'm not going to eat it," which is a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but that's why I was saying earlier, it could be the pesticide, it could be the gluten, it could be the hybridization, it could be the genetic manipulation. There's a, there's a lot of factors there. But uh, but but so we've got gluten, we've got vitamin and mineral deficiencies, we've got environmental chemicals. We've got infection. Those are the four kind of triggering points for autoimmune disease. And as it relates to Hashimoto's, I, you know, I've seen literally probably at least a 1,000 cases of Hashimoto's in the last 15 years. And mm-hmm. I've not seen a single case that did not respond to a gluten-free diet.
1: I was reading somewhere that they had uh, some of the thyroid medications actually have gluten in them. Is that, is that true? yeah a lot of them
2: do and and the type of gluten they have, uh like Synthroid, for example, contains corn hmm. and uh and so what happens is a lot of women that, that end up getting on that drug they they end up getting uh either getting worse or they end up not getting better because they're just continually getting corn gluten exposure uh in their medication and so what 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 a woman can do or a man if a man has hypothyroidism and they're gluten sensitive if they're trying to avoid gluten, and the doctor's recommending the medicine. Uh get the medicine compounded, you know, go to the compounding pharmacy. They can make the medicine without the gluten. It's mm-hmm. a real simple solution uh, but a lot of people don't even think to ask.
1: yeah, I think one of the the eye opening things for me was when I actually got tested, and you know I came back gluten sensitive I already knew that, but I found out that I had i think fifteen i think I maybe had twenty had twenty other food sensitivities, so I knew that. At that point in time, I was having intestinal permeability or, or what we called leaky gut. But um, talk a little bit about leaky gut because I don't think people understand that and then maybe give them a solution. And another thing that I found out was that a lot of things I came up sensitive to were like, except things were cross-reactive like coffee. I came up sensitive to chocolate, which I don't eat, drink coffee anymore or eat chocolate, and there were some other things that were cross reactive with the gluten that I don't eat anymore as well, except for getting the rice and the corn, which I don't know why I did that <laughs> but um talk a little bit about that uh with the you know intestinal permeability and if you're gluten sensitive you have more. You tend to have more food sensitivities because your your intestinal fortitude, I guess, has been compromised, so to speak.
2: Yeah. So a leaky gut is is kind of the layman layman's term for intestinal hyperpermeability. It's a lot easier to say too. Uh, but <laughs> what what happens is is it is what it sounds like. It's what happens is imagine the gut is like a garden hose. And generally, the water should go in one end and come out the other, right? And in the garden, this, in, our, in the case of our intestine, the garden hose is selective. Proper checks and balances that allow certain things to come into the bloodstream if they're nice. If they're nice and they are what the body needs. So, for example, vitamins and minerals and carbs and fats and proteins, our body can absorb those things from the food that we eat, but then it expels the rest as waste. But with leaky gut, imagine now instead of that garden hose having proper checks and balances, imagine it's just loaded with holes like one of those soaker hoses in somebody's garden. And uh, and so everything, the water is just the, the food, the bacteria in the food, everything is just leaking directly into the bloodstream. And so that's that's leaky gut or intestinal permeability. And so what happens is those things are leaking into the bloodstream. The immune system sits right there. Its Its job is to defend us from anything that accidentally leaks through and, uh, and with leaky gut that what happens is is we get the immune system is being just bombarded with chemicals that it's not supposed to be being bombarded with on a, on a regular basis and so it starts to overreact and as it's overreacting some of the things that are coming through it's attacking and so what happens this is how we develop food allergies is so the the foods that are leaking through directly into the immune system but they're not supposed to be mm-hmm. leaking through the immune system begins to attack, and so we start to become hyper allergic. And, you you know, we all hear the case about the bubble boy. He's got to be in a bubble. He can't, you know, Mm -hmm. he can't be around other people. He's got to have a mask, you know, because he's just so sensitive to the environment he can't survive. And this is what happens to people over many years is that the more leaky gut and the longer they have it, the more foods and the more things they become allergic to so that their body just continually is breaking down and breaking down and breaking down. Well, some of the chemicals that can leak into our bloodstream, they also look like us. So, for example, let's say that there are certain proteins from bacteria that are leaking into the blood, and the immune system's attacking these proteins. And over time, these pro- as these proteins continue to leak in, the immune system says, "Hey, you know, we're attacking this protein uh, because it, it's foreign and we don't like it." But but guess what? The thyroid kind of looks like this protein too. And so then the immune system starts to say, hey, well, if we're attacking this protein over here and the thyroid looks like this protein, let's start attacking the thyroid too. And so then the the immune attack starts to basically go toward the body's tissues. And that process is known as molecular mimicry, where whatever's leaking into the blood mimics one of our own organs or one of our own tissues. And so the body, after attacking the 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 chemical leaking into the blood over time starts to look at our own tissue and then starts to subsequently attack our own tissue. And this is how autoimmune disease develops. And so that leaky gut is what is the pre-stage. It's like the precursor for the development of autoimmune disease. Now, one of the things we know about gluten is that gluten causes leaky gut. Now, there are a handful of things that can cause leaky gut. Um, gluten is one of them. Antibiotics can cause a leaky gut. Um... Ibuprofen and aspirin can cause a leaky gut. Pesticides can cause a leaky gut. So, so that's like weed killers and um, things like Roundup or glyphosate. Then mm-hmm. we have uh, plastics can cause leaky gut. A lot of people don't realize that eating and drinking out of plastic, the plastic chemicals in the plastic can actually contribute to and create a leaky gut. There are elements in potatoes that have been discovered here recently to cause leaky gut. There's a family alkaloid in potatoes that have been shown to cause uh, that leaky gut reaction occur. So, so there, you know, again, there are a number of different things that can contribute to or cause a leaky gut. And so we, we, you know, the good advice there is, you know, one, if you if you suspect you are if you have autoimmune disease, then you probably have a leaky gut. So working backwards, just in reverse logic, we say, okay, it, at the very least, let's start removing the things that we know can cause leaky gut.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And
2: gluten and grain being, you know, being at the top of that list, but then looking at some of these other things. You know, if you have pain and you're taking ibuprofen every day, you're not helping that leaky gut out any. If you have uh, chronic infections and you're going to the doctor every month to get an antibiotic, you're probably not helping your leaky gut out any. Right? So, so those are some of the things that people can do, you know, to, to kind of move away from, from those elements to try to allow their gut to heal and seal. Now, there are also some supplements and different things uh, in different foods that are going to be helpful for leaky gut. One of the most helpful foods for leaky gut is bone broth. And That's so bone what I broth, do. just actual, you know, soup and bone broth work really, really well. But uh, but right. you know, glutamine as an amino acid, glutamine works really, really well to help heal the gut. Aloe vera works really, really well to help heal the gut. Turmeric, the the herb, the Indian spice, is really works really, really well to help heal and seal the gut. Vitamin A, um, there are certain nutrients that the gut won't heal if we're deficient in them. And so like vitamin B12 and folate or two very, very critical nutrients, B vitamins, that that the gut needs to repair itself. And so if we're deficient in those nutrients, then it's going to be really, really hard to overcome a leaky gut scenario. So those are some things that a person can look at. But Ultimately, what I would recommend if a person is really suffering with autoimmune disease is find a really good functional medicine doctor in your area to work with because that, that type of doctor is going to have the knowledge to be able to run the right kinds of tests because the information I'm giving you tonight is very generalized. It's not specific. And sometimes generalizations work really well. Sometimes a person can say, okay, I'm going to cut the grain out, and they feel better, and that's all they need to do. But sometimes a person does that, and they don't feel better because they have other issues that are underlying that are going on. And this is where a functional medicine doctor can really step in and offer advice and guidance and and run and use some of the right technology and do some of the right type of lab testing to really be able to figure out what that person needs as a unique individual as opposed to generalizing.
1: Yeah, a lot of times people just think, well, I do this one thing, and if that one thing doesn't work, then they don't know that they may have other underlying issues. Real quick, I know I got you for maybe two more minutes or so. Um, Migraines, because I had a gentleman on the show, Ray Audette, he wrote um, a book on on the paleo diet, and I remember him saying something about migraines or migraine headache. Uh, how often have you seen that, where um, grains are could be the cause of headache, or if you've ever seen that? And then also, I wanted you to kind of talk a little bit. And last question for you, and then we'll—I know you have wanted to talk about your book, your upcoming book, but um, gluten and cancer with people who are diagnosed with cancer. Just those two so things. Okay. Two
2: sure. So, so in 100% of migraines. I see gluten sensitivity. As a matter of fact, migraine headache is one of the neurological side effects of gluten sensitivity. Now, that's not to say that a person couldn't have a migraine for different reasons, too. Mm-hmm. But gluten is a major, major trigger for some people from, to, that have migraine headaches. Uh, you, I mean, you can have other things that will trigger migraine headache. Caffeine can trigger it. Coffee can trigger it. Um, so there are other triggers, other food-based triggers. But so gluten is definitely one on the top of the list that you got to look at if you're suffering with migraine. Um, as far as cancers are concerned, probably one of the most prolific cancers associated with gluten sensitivity is lymphoma. And it's the cancer... You know, you can get a lymphoma in your intestine, and it happens as a result of of, uh, years of gluten exposure. So there's definitely a correlation between that particular type of cancer and gluten exposure as as being a very strong relationship between the two. Um, so, So, yes, gluten can contribute to cancer. And again, I i 'm very, very hesitant to say, and I think we should all be scientifically we should be hesitant to say, Look, gluten is not the cure all so you know whatever whatever ails you go gluten free and you 're magically going to be better i don 't think that's true. I think that a lot of people that are very, very sick, and the doctors are medicating them find that going gluten free is extremely helpful, and in many cases, their disease does go away, but in many cases you know, 50% of their symptoms go away and their disease improves, but their disease doesn't go away because it's not just gluten. There's other things too. And I just I just say that because I don't want people to think, well, I did the gluten thing and I'm not better, so it must not be gluten. There are other reasons why diseases exist and occur that are beyond gluten. But does gluten trigger a migraine headache? Absolutely it can. Can gluten uh, contribute to and cause a lymphoma? Absolutely it can. And I've seen patients uh, die over over gluten-induced lymphoma because they failed uh, they they just did not want to go gluten free. It was just not something they were willing to do, and so it ended up taking their lives. I've lost a, a couple of different patients to
1: lymphoma caused by gluten. All right. um, Doctor Osguard, I've got one person on here with a question. Do you have time to take a question or?
2: Sure. Let's yeah, fire away.
1: Yeah, no, hold on. Hey, caller. Oh, this is. Hey, how hi. are you? Where?
0: It's Jane calling, and I'm Canada.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Hi Jane. Hi. I've I've actually read some of your um articles and I I really appreciate the work you're doing. Thank i you. yeah, I've been gluten free for a while now, um and so I'm completely off gluten. I'm eating more paleo now. But I still have a huge um challenge absorbing minerals. I'm deficient in so many things. And if you have any uh, help on that, like I know, um, I went to um, an endocrinologist, whatever it is, for the vitamin D. Um, they started giving me all these supplements, and I ended up with cataracts after that because I don't think I could absorb it. My vitamin D level never got high, <laughs> so I'm. It never really- came up.
2: What was the well? First of all, so a lot of times, what happens is the the, the endocrinologist. And I can't I don't like to generalize for every doctor but here's my experience.
0: Yeah.
2: The endocrinologist oftentimes will supplement with vitamin D but the dose of vitamin D they're using is usually somewhere between 2000 and 4000 IU per day, which is nowhere near enough. It the analogy it would be like trying eight, to spit out a forest fire.
0: What gave did they me give 8, you? 8000 units. I was on and that
2: what, or, Oh, what was your what was your level initially?
0: Um, My vitamin D, I kind of forget now. It was a while ago, and I've had so many other things. But it's just, um, I ended up, after being on the vitamin D supplement for about three months, I noticed my vision was changing. And, of course, I stayed on vitamin D and um, put me down to 4,000 units a day, I think, after six months. And my cataract kept developed so fast that nobody even believed that I had one. And then I ended up not being able to drive and all these things, it's just, I don't want to complain to you. It's not your fault, but it's just so frustrating, all of these things.
2: Okay, so here, I'm going to ramble a lot of different things off here, and, and I know this is going to be recorded, so you can come back and, and grab it and listen to it.
0: Thank you. Um,
2: so, first thing that you need to really have done is, is is your vitamin D level should be over 50, okay? And if it's not over 50, then it isn't high enough. The, the second thing that you need to have done, and that I would, you know, if you can't, again, if endocrinologists, if they're functionally, if they're in functional medicine, stick with them, but you probably should find a functional medicine doctor who, one, can adequately check your nutritional status. And, the, and there's a specific type of technology that has to be used to do that. You can't test the serum for vitamin and mineral deficiencies because it's too inaccurate and it's too fluctuated and it'll change from day to day. So the technology that's used to, that measures vitamin and mineral deficiencies the best is called lymphocyte proliferation. And so that particular type of testing is is, is critical and crucial to have that done.
0: The Could second you thing you that? need to have
2: looked at, lymphocyte, <laughs> L-Y-M-P-H-O-C-Y-T-E, lymphocyte, as in the lymphocyte, and then proliferation, P-R-O-L-I-F-E-R-A-T-I-O-N. So, mm-hmm. so lymphocyte proliferation. The second thing is you need to have your, your gut checked. And so having your gut checked, you need to have a doctor – primarily you would want to have a stool test done where they're measuring a number of different parameters. They'd be measuring the kinds of bacteria that live inside your gut. They would be measuring uh, the pH. They would be measuring whether or not you're secreting digestive enzymes. They would be measuring whether or not your immune system within your gut is, is working adequately and properly. And so this is going to give you, this type of testing is going to give you a lot of information about the status of your ability to digest and absorb nutrients, okay? You also would want to have somebody run what's called an amylase and a lipase level, and these are blood tests. Amylase is A-M-Y-L-A-S-E, and lipase is L-I-P-A-S-E. And these tests are measures for the enzymes that your pancreas secretes that help you digest your nutrients. And so, again, you want to fundamentally know what is the status of your gut and what is the status of the accessory organs to your gut's ability to be able to digest, absorb, and assimilate nutrition from the food that you eat. Because if that's broken, we can't just pump you full of vitamins. We have to work backwards and we have to get that piece fixed. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I would recommend that you do, if you haven't already done, is is have a good food allergy testing done. And uh, good food allergy testing means you check all seven immune pathways. That means the IgE plus all the six delayed hypersensitivity reactive pathways. So have a a good functional medicine doctor run those types of tests on you because that will allow you to hone in on your diet because it's possible you're still eating foods that your immune system is reacting to, although not violently, but creating a chronic stage of inflammation within your gut. It's causing your gut to, to not be able to properly absorb. So that's kind of fundamentally where I would begin the process. And again that that those are those are fundamental. You can't you can't measure other things without at least starting with those things first because if those things are broken, everything else upstream is going to be broken too.
0: Well, I've been so frustrated. I've gone to many different types of um health uh practitioners, uh naturopaths, I've gone to dietitians, I've gone the traditional route, and <laughs> all of them have made me ill.
1: Um well, and I know yeah, your well,
0: specialty is this. Um I, I do better when I don't take anything. <laughs> and that's and I know I need I'm I'm not um as as healthy as I could be. Do you do you well, have that, to know a, an organization or a place in Toronto in Canada?
2: Uh you know I don't. Um the best place I could tell you to look would be go to there's there's two places that you can look online. One is um, myfunctionalmedicinedoctor.org. dot org. Okay. And the other one is glutenfreesociety.org. dot org, and there's a there's a tab at the top of that website that says find a doctor. Okay.
0: And
2: um, and, and the reason why I can recommend that site is because the doctors that are on that site um, have gone through either one of my online educational courses. We have you know ten hours of postgraduate coursework that we require doctors uh, to take before allowing them to be um, listed in that database, so
1: that people uh, can find them. So you might you might look in either one of those locations. Yeah, oh, okay. Jane, real Jane, real quick, um, and then I'm going to let you go. Um, I interviewed Dr. Sachin Patel on the show probably two, three episodes ago. I believe he is in Toronto. He's he specializes oh, really? in functional medicine. Oh, you
2: know what? I think you're right. I think yeah. I know Dr. Patel. He's a great functional medicine doctor. So,
1: yeah, he's so in Toronto.
2: I didn't, re- I, I didn't realize he was in Toronto. I don't know why oh, I didn't perfect. realize that. I, I need but, somebody yeah. who
0: knows about this stuff. The rest of them are all like, I feel like they're yeah. guinea pigs. They're nice yeah. people, no, but it's not helping me. And because- he will
2: run those tests. He will run yeah. those kinds of tests. I, I know I know him personally, and I know what he does. So he will
0: definitely oh, do perfect. that. Perfect. Right. Thank you so right. much. I really Jane, enjoy your
1: work. Jane, thank you for calling in. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Yeah, she must have called in from Skype. That's the first time I had someone's name call uh, pick up. But talk, you have a new book that's coming up. Tell us about the new book and then I'll I'll let you go. Thanks for taking that yeah, question. Yeah, so
2: too. yeah, you're welcome. Um the new book is No Grain No Pain. It's being published by Simon and Schuster and it's coming out. We're going to do a um kind of a pre-launch of the book in November, the first week in November. Mm-hmm. Uh, where people can pre-order and we're going to be giving away tons of recipes and bonuses and things that they can take away to start implementing and using before the book, is physically available on January 26th. Cool. And, yeah. uh, you know, th- you can learn more. They can learn more about that at two places. One, glutenfreesociety.org, and the other is Dr. Peter O-S-B-O-R-N-E, that's Osborne, O-S-B-O-R-N-E dot com. And uh, there'll be yeah. plenty of information about the book when we launch it.
1: Yeah, and for those people who might listen to the recording, how can they get in contact with you? It's gluten. I know you have the society dot org, and then if they wanted to get you into you uh, get in contact with you directly to maybe come into the clinic or get some kind of uh, help, how do they do that?
2: Yeah, that would be drpeterosborn.com. dot com, and right. uh, they they get on there and our phone number and all of our contact information is listed there. If they want to look at the clinic and
1: what we offer and what we do here cool dr osborne i appreciate it man i enjoyed it i had to use myself as a patient but hey <laughs> really really enjoyed the show and learning a lot about about grains thank you so much
2: hey man, thanks for having me on i enjoyed it as well always always happy to come on and share
1: okay and i want to copy of that book i'm going to email you to get a copy of that book when it comes out yep let's do okay. it okay all right. thanks man have a great day all right you too right. Mm, bye-bye Cool. Good show earlier than I normally do the show. I usually do the show at eight o'clock at night, but really great show. Um, if you're interested in learning more about grains, there's also a show I did with Dr. Ron Hogan on dangerous grains. If you go into archives, you can listen to that show as well. And it'll give you a little bit more, uh, background on grains and, uh, Again, the book was called Dangerous Grains, and then Doctor Peter Osborne has his new book coming out, No Grain, No Pain. Next week, I'm going to be talking with Doctor, uh, not Doctor, but Pam Colleen, who is a nutritionist, on her book Survival of the Unfittest. This book, I just started. The first chapter is actually already blowing my mind. We'll be talking a lot about vegetarianism, porn, uh, different types of things, and, and the decline of civilization because we are losing our fertility. So it's a little off-center, but um, Pam, I spoke with Pam uh, before, and she's a great nutritionist, and we'll be talking about her book, Survival of the Unfittest. And, again, if you're interested in learning more about grains, I'll repeat it again. Listen to this show, and then go back in the archives and listen to Dangerous Grains with Dr. Ron Hogan, a lot of stuff. That we covered in this show, Dr. Ron covered as well. And then there's some things in there that he did um I didn't speak with Dr. Osborne about that you'll learn more about. And it's all about educating yourself. I know when I started this gluten-free thing that I didn't know much. I didn't even know that I gluten was in condiments. I didn't know any of that stuff. And uh, that kind of saved me from going and listening to other people's podcasts at that time and educating my own self. So educate yourself. And find out really what's going on. Thanks for listening. If you listen to the show, listen to the recording. Don't forget to connect with me on social media. You can connect with me on Facebook.com slash I'm the fat man. That's I-M-P like Paul, H-A-T-M-A-N. I'm the fat man. Same thing on Twitter is the the fat underscore man on Twitter. And then I'm on Pinterest is I'm the fat man one. So thanks for listening tonight. I will see you same time same fat channel next week. Peace.